All right, so a couple weeks ago, um, I shared with you a message about things God hates. And I told you then that in a couple weeks, there was something else in Malachi that God says he hates. So we're going to look at that this morning. Um, I'm in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 to start off. And uh, let me just dive into it, and in a few minutes, it'll start to make sense. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? All right, so the NIV says breaking faith with one another. The Good News Bible says, why do we break our promises to one another? And the New King James says, why do we deal treacherously with one another? When I see that kind of a disparity in words, it makes me want to go back to the Hebrew and see what's going on. So I looked up the Hebrew word that's breaking promises, breaking faith, or dealing treacherously. And the Hebrew word is bagad, and the definition is this, to act or deal treacherously, faithlessly, deceitfully, or to offend. So I thought, that's very interesting. So I wanted to read exactly what was going on, so maybe that could help me understand exactly which word we should be using here. So in verse 11, the next verse, it says this, Judah has broken faith, same word, or dealt treacherously, whichever one, this is the word we're talking about. Judah has broken faith or dealt treacherously. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. So here's what God is saying. In Jerusalem, and this is after the destruction, after the rebuilding of the temple, when they should be walking with God fresh and new again, that they did this horrible, detestable thing. They broke faith with God. See, God is like the husband. Israel's like the bride. And what Israel decided to do is get rid of her husband, commit adultery, and find a new spouse. And God calls this treachery. And he calls it faithlessness, deceit, and offense, breaking promise, breaking faith. He says we break faith with one another in this context. And then he said we, we being ancient Israel, have broken faith with him. Okay, now I understand how we've broken faith with him. Ancient Israel has found a new God, worshiping idols. But how do we break faith with one another? What's he talking about? He uses this spiritual infidelity to segue into what he's talking about. Listen, verses 13 through 16. God no longer pays attention to your offerings. And you ask why. It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith, same word, dealt treacherously with her, the wife of your youth, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one flesh? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. So Judah divorced God, started following false gods. And he says, you people are doing the same thing with each other. You're breaking faith with each other. So he went with the spiritual and then he went with the physical, which we're going to see in a moment also ties to the spiritual. So, in these four verses, Malachi chapter 2, 
verses 13 through 16. Four verses, there's seven lessons, seven keys, seven points about marriage and divorce, just in those four verses. So we're going to look at all seven of them. Um, and I'm going to be focusing on a bunch of negative stuff because God says, I hate divorce. And I have to talk about that this morning. And yet I know very well that a lot of you have experienced divorce. And so I want to, on the one hand, I want to be careful. I don't want to come off and hurt people's feelings and be all offensive. And I definitely don't want to come off all holier than thou. Because me and my wife have not been divorced. So it would be real easy for me. Hey, look at me. We, we were able to do it when you couldn't. <laughs> Let me tell you something. My wife has told me I have given her the 15 best years of her life. And this December we'll be married 25 years. You know, people who've been married a long time don't have the perfect marriage. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage because there's two imperfect people who are trying to live together all the time. In fact, Ruth Graham was once asked if she'd ever considered divorcing Billy Graham, and she said no. Murder, yes. Divorce, no. <laughs> so the fact that my wife and I haven't broken up after 25 years, I can't even tell you why. There's... There's no doubt that she's wanted to divorce me a million times. In fact, when I gave this message yesterday, she was sitting next to Michael LaPaw, and he whispered over, a million times? <laughs> I told you, I exaggerate. And she said, more than a million. <laughs> Ditto! You know, marriage is hard. I'm not going to lie to you. You have good times. You have lousy times. But you hang in there the best you can. So I got to talk about divorce this morning. Um, but it's not as a guy who's holier than thou. It's a guy who sometimes hangs in by his fingernails and wonders why he's still in a marriage. And sometimes we have good times. But it's my responsibility to teach the Word of God the way it teaches. And divorce can be a sin. And sometimes people commit sins, and you need to know it's a sin. Not so you can feel bad and put your tail between your legs and go home, but so you can acknowledge it from God's perspective is wrong, turn from it, repent, and ask God to forgive you. Now, for some of you, you're way past the fixing it stage. You've been divorced, you've been remarried, you've got a new spouse, new kids. Fine, you can't fix your old marriage. That's fine. Jesus died for all of us. He forgives our sins. He does. But we don't just blow them off. And there are some people who are in that place where they're this close to having a divorce. And I'm hoping between this week and next week, I'll be able to provide you some encouragement and some hope to turn that around. It's a two-week series, so I hope you'll come back next week, even if I do hurt your feelings today, which I hope I don't, because I do hope to wrap it all up with some real positive stuff. All right, so seven lessons on marriage and divorce. Lesson number one, God rejected Judah's prayers and offerings because they broke their marriage covenant with their wives, and he calls this treachery. That's what I've already read to you. But before I go on to number two, I want to tell you that the New Testament says something very similar. Remember, God says, I no longer accept your offerings. They go to the temple, they make an offering, and they pray to God. And God's basically saying, I'm not interested. I don't want to hear your prayers. I don't want your offerings. Because the way you're dealing with your wives. In that culture, it was a totally male-oriented culture. The men did the divorcing. The women didn't. So using a male perspective here is proper. But in our culture, it goes both ways. We have just as many women doing it as men doing it nowadays. So if I keep saying men, 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 I'm not saying all men are evil. It's just that's how the culture was. But he said, God 
rejected Judah's prayers because of the way they dealt with their wives. Listen to what 1 Peter 3, 7 says. Husbands, likewise dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So even the Apostle Peter said that if we don't treat our wives well, it impacts our prayer life with God. Husbands, your prayer life, your relationship with God is based in part on your relationship with your wife. And if you mistreat your wife, God takes it personally and it hurts your relationship with him. It's pretty serious stuff, don't you think? I read to you from the New King James, it said... Um, the wife is the weaker vessel. Now, some of you might find that offensive. I'm not exactly sure even what it means. Weaker vessel, you mean physically weaker or like arm wrestle? I'm not sure what it means. I have some thoughts, but I haven't fully gone into it because that wasn't the point of the lesson. But I liked how the Good News Bible put it. I think it put it better. Listen. In the same way, you husbands must live with your wives with the proper understanding that they are more delicate than you. Treat them with respect. I like that. Because they also will receive together with you God's gift of life. Do this so that nothing will interfere with your prayers. So the first lesson is that Israel was dealing treacherously by breaking faith with their wives and divorcing them. And it impacted their prayers. Well, I looked up the word treacherously in the Hebrew... But when it gave me the word treacherous in the English, I said, well, what's treacherous mean? Why did they use that word? I, I thought I knew what treacherous mean, but that didn't seem to fit. So I looked up treachery, and here's what it says. Two different places I found it online. First definition was betrayal of trust. There you have it. Treachery is a betrayal of trust or a deceptive action. And Webster says it's a violation of allegiance or of faith and confidence. Treason. So apparently treachery and breaking faith is synonymous with treason. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always understood treason is when you betray your country. No, it's when you betray anybody. And we think that somebody who betrays our country, I mean, there's death penalty usually for that, especially during wartime. Somebody joins the enemy or is a spy and sends information. You know, they get hung or shot, and they should. They're treasonous. That's what they get, treachery. God wants us to be faithful to our country, but even more so, more so, he wants us to be faithful to our spouses. You know, I was born in this country. I wasn't even given the option of being an American citizen. I'm glad I am. Don't get me wrong. Now that I'm an adult, I choose this country. That's why I'm here. You know, I can move anywhere I want to, but I'm staying here. I love this country. But I was born into it. I wasn't born into my marriage. It was a choice, a full-grown, mature choice. I made a covenant with my wife. And so if I betray my country, that's bad. But if I betray my wife, that's uber bad. That's as bad as it gets. When we get married in this country, it usually goes something like this. Uh, do you, Benjamin, take Mary, Miriam, to be your lawfully wedded wife. To love and to hold her, keeping her only unto yourself. In sickness and in health. For richer or for poorer. For better or for worse. Worse. Till death do you part. 
And usually they throw in these words. Do you, Benjamin, before God and these witnesses, swear to be faithful to this woman for better or for worse for the rest of your life? And then Benjamin says, I do. And then he goes to Miriam and says, hey, same thing. Before God and these witnesses, do you swear, better for worse, richer for sickness and health, till death do you part? I do. But we don't. We swear to God that we will, and then we don't. What do you call that? You make a covenant to be faithful to somebody until you die, and then you break that faith. I don't know what you call it. God calls it treachery, and he hates it. God thinks it's evil. He takes marriage very seriously. Other than the decision to follow Jesus Christ, the, mar the decision to get married is the most significant decision you will make on this planet. Our relationship to our spouses is the most important relationship that we have. Bar none, period. Well, God says a lot about marriage in the Bible, and he also says a lot about keeping your word. And these two things come together, two big things. Let me t tell you what he says about keeping your word. I'm reading from the Torah, from Deuteronomy, actually. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you. You will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. Because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because if you don't, God will hold you accountable to it. He said so right there. So this idea of keeping our word is extremely important. And keeping it in marriage is the most important of that. Listen, next week we'll talk a little bit more about this. But marriage is an option. You don't have to marry somebody. And you don't have to marry the person you're, you're looking for. You've got to look this person and say, you know what, am I willing to commit to this person for the rest of my life? Not for the next two years, five years, ten years, but forever. No matter what happens. Am I really going to trust them with my life? If you have any hesitancy, do not get married. Stay single. Or wait till there's somebody you're willing to trust your life with. And then grab that person and never let them go. So seven lessons in those four verses. The first one is divorce is a form of treachery and it hinders our prayers. Number two and three go together. They come from Malachi chapter 3, verse 15. Well, hang on a second. I want to make sure I don't miss something. I think I'm skipping something here. Number three, two and three say... A wife is a lifelong partner by binding oath. So those are the things I shared with you and I put them together. Lifelong partnership by binding oath. Two into one. So I call them two and three. Divorce is a form of treachery, hinders your prayers. Number two, a wife is a long li lifelong partner. Why? Because of the binding oath, the lifelong oath. That's three. Now number four. Holy matrimony produces holy offspring. That's from Malachi 3.15. Here's what it says. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? 
because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself and your spirit. Basically, this is saying if the marriage is holy, the children are holy, the offspring are holy. And of course, the reverse is also true. There was this big concern back in the early church. So you have two people. Let's say they worship Aphrodite, Aphrodite. And one of them hears about Jesus and learns the gospel. And let's say it's the woman. She goes, yeah, this is what I've been waiting for. I repent of my sins. I'm going to follow Jesus. Now she's married to a worshiper of a false god, Aphrodite. He's got weird practices. He does sickening, evil things. And now she's, should she have prep? children with this man? Should she leave this man? What should she do? If she has children with him, doesn't that mean they're like spiritually illegitimate? Big confusion. Big concern. A just concern. The Apostle Paul addresses it. Here's what he said to them. I'm in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 14. To the rest I say this, and I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So even though it's not part of today's message, the Apostle Paul said, even if one of you becomes a believer and one of you doesn't, do not divorce. You see how seriously God takes it? God would rather you stay committed to somebody who worships an idol than to break your covenant with them. I mean, it's serious business. This lifelong covenant is a lifelong covenant. You're in it for better or for worse. Now it's worse. Good, now you can pray for this person. Pray them out of the temple of Aphrodite into the kingdom of God. Or just turn your back on them, run away from them, and leave them to go to hell. Well, Steve, when you put it that way, yeah. See, for better or for worse. Now you can help. Now you're there. This is when love matters. You know, love means nothing when it's easy. That's, that's fun. The vow is for when it's hard. And that's when we bail. God says no, for better or for worse. So number four is holy matrimony produces holy offspring. Number five, marriage and divorce are first and foremost spiritual issues. Malachi 2.15. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. The decision to get married is a spiritual decision also. And the decision to get divorced is also a spiritual decision. Because marriage is a spiritual issue, I have a position on homosexual marriage that I don't waver on. I've got opinions on how taxes should be spent, but unless they're spiritual issues, I recognize they're just my opinion, and I've got no business trumpeting them from the pulpit. Politics is one thing, religion is another, but sometimes they come together. Now, sometimes people will argue, this whole Supreme Court right now is looking at homosexual marriage, and is it going to be legal countrywide? Well, let me share with you my perspective on it. But before I do, I've noticed that 
when people get into arguments about this, those who support the biblical side almost always lose the argument. And I think there's a good, solid reason for that, because they're trying to argue from a non-biblical perspective. Oh, it's a secular world, so let's give the secular arguments against homosexual marriage. There are none. There's no statistics that say, hey, this is what's going to happen in your country if you change how marriage works. It's never been done before. So we have no arguments. We've got nothing to stand on but the Word of God. And if we're ashamed, embarrassed, or accept the argument that the Word of God is irrelevant to this debate, then we lose. I don't accept that argument. Let me read to you a statement I, I just wanted to write up so I could say it just right. God followers are at a disadvantage in the debate on homosexual marriage. When we try to argue from a secular standpoint as to why we're against homosexual marriage, we don't have strong arguments. There are no statistics on how homosexual marriage will impact our culture. We're hesitant to say that our main reason for being against homosexual marriage is spiritual and moral. We understand that God forbids homosexuality. That's the reason we oppose it. As God followers, we're against promoting, supporting, or accepting any sin as a legally endorsed position. Our sense of morality is based in God and the Bible. The secular world may ridicule that and even argue separation of church and state, but that should not coy or silence us. We don't need to cave in on this issue. We know what's in our society's best interest because God has told us. Holy matrimony is God's way. So I don't have secular arguments against it. I'm against homosexual marriage because the Bible's against it. That's it. Well, somebody says, well, this is a secular society. We can't base our laws on your religion. Hey, you're going to base your laws on my vote. And where I get my sense of morality isn't up for debate. Where do you get yours? I get mine from God. Where do you get yours? Telling me my source of morality is irrelevant, but yours is relevant? What's your source? Your own head? Your own imagination? No, I'll stick with the Bible. And so when somebody tells me that I can't use the Bible to base my opinions on public law, poo-poo on that, of course I will. I don't care what they say. You think our entire culture isn't based on biblical morality? You know it is. We may be throwing it under the bus now, but our forefathers were quoting God and the Bible all the time when they made up our laws. Our laws about kidnapping, where do those come from? The Bible. Murder, the Bible. Stealing, the Bible. All of our big laws are Bible-based. The morality for all of those is based on the Bible. So this one is too. Seven lessons on divorce and marriage from those four verses. Number one, divorce is a form of treachery and it hinders our prayers. Numbers two and three, a wife is a lifelong partner by binding oath. Number four, holy matrimony produces holy offspring. Number five, marriage and divorce are first and foremost spiritual issues. Number six, God takes sides on a divorce. You know, when people divorce, what usually happens is the man hires his own attorney, the woman hires her own attorney, and then they fight, and they both try to come out with the most stuff. That's how the typical divorce goes. Well, imagine if God said, no, I'll decide. And by the way, I'm taking sides. I'm not going to be impartial. I'm going to support the person who's not being treacherous. 
How awesome would that be? I've got a buddy. His wife just went bonkers, and she started sleeping around and doing crazy things. And so they had to have a divorce because she wouldn't repent. She, you know, had she repented, he would have taken her back, but she wouldn't. She just wanted to live some crazy, wild life, so he divorced her. And according to our laws, now he's got to give her alimony. So he's got to pay for her to have this wild life, which is just nuts. So God's saying, you know what? I'm taking sides. I'm going to go with the person who's being abused. I'm taking their side. Malachi 2.14, the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. God's going to be the witness, and he's going to stay, stand on the side of the person who's been mistreated. That's the sixth thing. The seventh and last thing, there's something I've mentioned at the very beginning, but I'm starting the list, and this is last on the list. Three words. It's in verse 16, and God says, I hate divorce. So there's seven things in those four verses. And really, you can forget about the top six because there's no way you're going to memorize them all. If I ask you next week, give me the seven things about... Well, Allison will get it right, but nobody else will. <laughs> give me the seven things about divorce and marriage. But if I say, give me the three words, what's the one thing God said? I hate divorce. You'll remember that. Now, a couple things and then I'll be done. I talked a bit about homosexual marriage. There are a lot of religious people, Bible-believing people, who are extremely vocal, upset, and up in arms about this issue. And, well, they should be. But they're not extremely upset and vocal and up in arms about unjust divorce. And they should be. In fact, somebody who's committing heterosexual adultery or has committed heterosexual divorce has got no business telling somebody else that they're in sin for their sexual sins. We lose our integrity. We don't speak with authority. When we say, gay marriage is wrong, but I'll divorce my wife and commit adultery, that's good. That's not good either. It's not about being better. It's not about being good. It's trying our best to promote God's values. And if we're going to criticize gay marriage, and we should, we should also criticize unjust divorce. A little bit of balance, a little bit of perspective. It's not like God says, I hate gay marriage in the Bible. But he does say, I hate divorce in the Bible. So we find it real easy to get all up in arms about the one issue that we don't like, but we support the other issue that God doesn't like. And I'm just calling for us to be a little bit more balanced in our approach to things. We should be just as passionate against unjust divorce as we are against homosexual marriage. Now, I've talked about divorce a lot, and I used the phrase a few times, unjust divorce. Steve, are there any times when divorce is acceptable to God? Yes, there are. And we'll talk about those next week. Um, cliffhanger, now you'll be back. <laughs> We're going to look at what Jesus said. Jesus taught on this issue. It's an extremely important topic. People have been debating it and discussing it for years. In fact, in the days of Jesus, there are two huge religious schools that had opposing views on divorce and marriage. So they came to Jesus, said, okay, here's what this one school says, this is what that school says, what do you say? And we're going to look at exactly what he said next week. But before you leave this morning, the thing I want you to go home with I said it at the beginning, I'll say it again. 
if you have been unjustly divorced or if you divorce somebody unjustly, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Yes, it is a sin in many instances, but it's not the unpardonable sin. If you've committed the sin, tell God, now you realize you did wrong and you're sorry and ask him to forgive you. And he will. And then don't worry about it anymore. When you commit a sin, you repent of it, and God takes it away. But if you're in a place where you can fix it, if you can restore your relationship, then by all means restore it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week too. Please bow your heads for a moment of prayer. Lord God, help us not to be holier than thou, but help us to be holy. Help us to be just, loving people who stand for right and against wrong. To do good always. To never compromise your values. And to be able to keep our word when we give it. You said you'll hold us accountable for keeping it. Help us not to give it if we're not willing to be held to it. And when we do give it, to hold to it. And I pray especially for those in our congregation who are struggling in their marriages right now, who've gotten to a point where they, they don't see any hope, any future, and divorce seems like a good option to them. Touch their hearts. Show them that it's not the good option. There's better options out there. Bless them and keep them. Help them to be strong and faithful and to come through better than they went in. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.